But I would say, I would say if I had to just put one thing, it's just, it's for me to start paying attention a little bit more to what God has to say and what he's doing in these places where people are required to live life differently than the way that I do. What, and, and we can put, we can put one word on that. Like, I don't tarry. Mm. I don't wait. Well, if you're anything like Zach or I, you're finding what God did in the early 1900s in a tiny little building in Los Angeles so challenging and so rich. So we're excited to press into this final episode about why the revival ended and where we go from here. I think that happens with revival too, that it's like a, it's a wave that rushes in on the beach, but waves recede. And again, Mark Sayers would say that the, the significant strength of individualism and secularism in our culture does not mean that God's power is defeated. The longer we wait, the more powerfully the wave will come in. And so, but waves recede. So the wave of Azusa Street receded. So, and so why did that happen? Well, all revivals often end because we begin to major in the minors. So some theological questions came up in the revival at Azusa Street, in particular as it relates to the baptismal formula. So some people within the Pentecostal movement to this day, and even then, there was a debate about, okay, Jesus tells us to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But the apostles in the book of Acts only baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. So therefore, some people in the Pentecostal movement and the Azusa Street movement were saying, we only should be baptizing in the name of Jesus. That is a great example of majoring in a minor. Hmm. And so oftentimes what happens in revivals is not only are we trying to continue to manufacture an experience instead of letting it recede, we also then out of the anxiety, I think, out of feeling the anxiety that the, the, the manufactured experience isn't working, we start to major in the minors and say, oh, it's because we're believing something wrongly. So there was that. I mean, letters starting in 1908, there are some letters and journals of participants that just start to notice that like the worship, like the spiritual temperature we would call it in worship was just cooling down. Uh, one woman wrote in her journal that she thought it was because they started using a piano in worship until then they only had done like acapella. So it's nice <laughs> to know that we've just always been arguing about worship all the time as the church. Um, Those new young whippersnappers came in and ruined the music. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And uh, Maybe you edit that out. I mean, no, I think we'll keep it. Uh, and then there was like, uh, there were reports that like after the preaching, there would actually be fights probably about that apostolic kind of formula about baptism. There'd be fights. Um, another key leader who visited kind of said in his journal with disgust that it had been taken over and I'm quoting by colored people. And so I think another reason that revivals may end is because they become infected by the divide of the world around them. So worldliness, quote unquote, is always a problem in the church when we start to allow what's going on out there to define what's going on in here. And I think in the early 1900s, of course, the issue would have been racial divide, right? Black versus white or Hispanic or whatever. I wonder if what would hinder revival in our day or end it would be a similar division that's not based on race per se in American culture. It's based on right and left, right? Hmm. Conservative and liberal is the big well, thing in the church. Yeah, I, I, I would wonder that too. And I just wonder, 
like, you know, th there's just some polls that just came out recently about how, you know, if you're, if you're a Christian, you're, you're the, the point between right and left and Christianity being on the right and non-Christians being on the left is huge. It's, yeah. it's almost like a one-to-one -one correlation. And so what's so, and, and, and what's so unique, right, about the Azusa Street Revival is that they visibly demonstrated unity where the world demonstrated divide. And what we have done in the church is allow political parties to dictate our theological positions and then thus to divide denominations as the one that we're a part of is doing slowly. So, I mean, we see a race problem. We see a theological divisiveness problem, potentially a cooling and worship problem. Why is that? I mean, other than like sometimes God shows up in worship and his manifest presence in ways that he does in other times. One so you have all these things going on, some racism stuff that would, I mean, and all of that would kind of gunk up the system. But there's, in that book that I've mentioned before, Cecil M. Robeck's The Azusa Street Mission Revival, he takes an interesting take. So he has like traveled the world to find the, every newspaper, every journal, everything he can get his hands on to understand what's going on at the revival. Um, he notes in a conversation with someone who lived through the revival, he had a, that, uh, or, or recording of a conversation with someone who lived through the revival that took place in the 1950s, this conversation, a person who there in 1908 said in, 19, in the 1950s, so you know, 40 some years later, that there was a mass exodus out of the mission in May of uh, 1908, but nobody real, there's no other kind of correlative data to that. So he could be remembering that date wrong. Um, but one of the things that Robeck has found is that the missions newspaper, the apostolic faith that was distributed all over the country and all over the world, it published less than usual issues in the first half of 1908. And remember it kind of end the revival itself ends in early 1909. The issues that they did publish in early 1908 seemed to lack the level or the amount of testimony of what God was doing in the Azusa Street Revival, and in fact, totally omitted its third anniversary. Like they didn't even really mention it. So it feels like they, it, one way to read that could be it, there wasn't a lot going on, so they weren't writing as much. But then, but then in the summer of 1908, in July and August, the masthead, so the masthead of a newspaper is at the top of the part, the, the top part, and, and their masthead had always said, the apostolic faith published in Los Angeles, California, suddenly switches to publish in pa Portland, Oregon. Like out of nowhere with no announcement. The editor of that paper was a woman named Clara Lum. She came to the Azusa Street Revival. She'd actually published, been the publisher of like another kind of Christian magazine at the time. And all we know is that she left the Azusa Street Mission and took the paper with her. And she moved to Portland with maybe some others from the Azusa Street Mission and started an apostolic faith mission there. And so obviously there was some sort of divide, right? I mean, Clara was on the leadership team of the Azusa Street Mission. I mean, she was deeply involved with William Seymour and perhaps that's where also, so you have these like big cultural pressures on the revival, you have some theological issues, but then as always, there's interpersonal conflict. And so um, what you actually come to find out is Clara, she was white, was in love with William Seymour. Mm. And William, 
See what I'm saying? And William was advised by wise people not to marry a white woman because at this time, I mean, that was, I don't even know if that had ever really happened. I mean, it was so rare. And if it did happen, it would have been such a distraction. And so he ended up marrying an African-American woman. And so one way to read this too, is that Clara feeling kind of spurned by Seymour moved to Oregon with the paper and that created a significant enough divide in the mission. And then, um, you know, so the revival kind of cools off in the spring of 1909 and some of their key leaders go to other churches in LA. Seymour uh, continues to pastor it. It just becomes basically, I mean, prior during the revival, it was, you know, very inter interracial and multi-ethnic, but after 1909, it becomes a predominantly African-American church the Los Angeles newspapers really stop talking about what's going on at Azusa. Like they move on in the 1920s. Um, this white guy kind of comes in while Seymour was away speaking at places with his wife. Uh, and he actually starts to argue with them about the nature of sanctification. So will William Seymour and other Pentecostals, said that justification and sanctification, so justification is how we're made right with God, sanctification is how we're made holy. They said that those were separate events. And this dude came in saying that's wrong. And uh, he actually convinced another nearby apostolic faith, kind of Azusa-esque church to let him preach and see if he would change their minds. And while uh, William Seymour was away, uh, one of his leaders let this dude preach for a series of months. And uh, he was white. And so uh, people kind of started to change their mind and kind of think, okay, actually maybe justification and sanctification really do happen at the same time. Uh, the indwelling of the spirit happens then. And then we grow in holiness over our life instead of it kind of happening in a single moment. And so as, so William Seymour gets back to Azusa with his wife. The and single moment being the, uh, the speaking in tongues, right? Right, yeah. As, so this other separate moment so there's two ways. Justification and sanctification happen at the same moment. Now I grow in holiness. Uh, the other way was you're justified, but later you're sanctified, at which point you can be baptized by the Spirit, at which point you're, there's the evidence of that is. And it's like boom, boom, boom. Well, sometimes some distinct, there'd be some time, but then after you were sanctified, you wanted to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know, so. Okay, okay. So Seymour gets back. This dude's preaching in his church, and this guy basically thought he was the boss of the uh, Azusa Street Mission now. So Seymour gathered his duly elected board and they voted for this guy not to be the pastor. That guy from the pulpit said, how many of you want to follow me? And about a half of the people raised their hand. So the next day they padlocked the building. Uh, Seymour and his elders pa padlocked the building. So that dude and his people had to leave. And that was basically the beginning of the end. I mean, it, it was a body blow to them. It divided the body significantly. It changed the name of the financial game. Oh, you know what? Another thing that caused division was that they started passing an offering bucket. So prior to that, you could just kind of give it back or as the, as the Lord led. And then they started as part of their services, passing the bucket. Huh. And that frustrated people. Cause they were like, well, we're not standing on God's provision. So again, these like little divisions over theology and practice, like piano, so theology, apostolic stuff, like the apostolic formula for baptism, you know, practice, like should we sing with a piano? Should we pass an offering plate? Mixed with the racism divide of their culture with 
kind of perhaps like a spurning of a woman. And in the words of Shakespeare, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned Hmm. was enough to really kind of cool the fires of revival. And uh, William Seymour died of a heart attack in the 1920s. His wife tried to carry it on and it didn't really work. And so, yeah. And I, I think one of the things I didn't say about studying revivals earlier too, Zach, is, and I think this is important, is when we go back and see how the Holy Spirit worked as powerfully as he did here in the Azusa Street mission in the early 1900s, it does increase our faith and our expectancy for what God can do and maybe gives us a vision for what is a church that's living in the power of the Holy Spirit look like? But at the same time, it also cautions us against the errors and the excess that kind of hinder a move of God. So they got obsessed about this apostolic formula and made a very small theological issue into a major one. In fact, there's a guy who attends Regen. There can be no formula to make God appear. This is not Aladdin where you rub the lamp, you know, three times, you know. Right. And And you're not wrong, but at the same time, there's a guy in our community who has been texting me. His barber thinks that our whole church is apostate, that our whole church, everybody that I have baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has an invalid baptism, and he needs to come and rebaptize them in the name of Jesus Christ. Instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I was literally texting with this. I mean, this is still happening, I mean, but it's making a minor theological issue a major one. And so we have to be very clear. I think a lesson of this is we have to be crystal clear or work to be on what is a significant doctrinal issue and what is a matter of preference. Well, I mean, I mean, this is, this is CS Lewis's entire best work, mere Christianity, right? What are the mere things that make somebody a Christian? And after that, how do we give people freedom on, on some of those things? And the other thing is you, you notice how when it becomes a fight about preference, piano and worship or not, passing the bucket or not, that also hinders a move of God. And the reason that American Christianity in the last 25 years has, American Christianity in the last 25 years has defined itself on meeting your preferences. Come to our big church where we have a program for your kids, your teens, for you, for your parents, and it's all kind of consumeristic. Mm -hmm. We're gonna meet your needs. We've based our entire church methodology in the last 25 years on preference. And what happens when you stop offering the program that I like, or I get bored, I'm going to go to another church that meets my preference. The best thing that could have ever happened to the church, which is possibly why this COVID crisis will lead to revival. The best thing is that COVID has made it not about your preferences anymore. Because you can't go to church when you want to, to hear the music you want to hear. On the one hand, it's probably made it more consumeristic because now you can watch eight live streams on a Sunday morning. Yeah. But the future of the church, the post COVID church belongs to the people who have crucified their preferences and want to be a part of what God's doing in a local context. And so this I think is why, the leaders of the church maintain, like, don't go back. Yep. Right. Yeah. Like 
okay, now we're free to go back and we just go back to everything that we were doing. Right. I think that's going to be a big, big mistake. Right. And so here are you and I, along with others, leading a church through the COVID crisis. And the call on our lives is not to go back to what was, but to be faithful and wait and tarry to experience what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our midst now. And we are a church that's growing in dependency on the Holy Spirit. I mean, we have anywhere between five and 20 people praying together Monday through Thursday for half an hour. That's significant. Um, we're a church where people are being actively delivered of lies, people who are experiencing physical healing, people are receiving prophetic words to kind of help us understand the father's heart for us in this season. And so we want to be attentive to those things, but we, we can learn through the Azusa street lens, how to be wise. I think, and I think it gives me such an appreciation too for how, uh, for just like the nature of American Christianity and some of the strongholds that we need to be careful that we don't walk into and allow to take over and stuff like that. I think, I think we're also a church too, because I can speak for myself on this. Um, and I, I, I mentioned it earlier. We're a church that allows things like physical healing, um, allows things like, not allow, I don't know if the right word is allow. We, um, we see things happening, and we hear things happening that we may or may not agree with 100%. We don't right. disagree with anything 100%. Right. Um, I, I feel like we're very, um, like, I feel like what God has given to our congregation is a truthful yet graceful um, sense of our community. Like, yeah. like I don't know, I, I don't know where I'm at on like physical healings yet, you right. know, and I don't know, I don't know that I need to experience one to, to, to have my faith in God be like, like, yeah. you know, all the way up to the top. Yeah. Um, I feel good about somebody saying, yeah, I, you know, I had this or this happen to me. Um, and, and I would say, okay, that's, that is amazing. Right. And that's it. Like, I, you know, I, I may, I may want to hear their story, but like I, I sit in non-judgment about it yeah. without necessarily carrying a, a negative or positive judgment of it. And, and that's okay because to me, that's minor, but right. to somebody else, like the healing of something might be major. Right. Well, and, and, and I think to your point, I think that's really true. I think as a church, what we've, Sometimes I'll say from the front, you know, you're going to be like, you're going to like about 80% of what happens here. You're going to be comfortable with about 70% of it. And I think we've built into our culture an appreciation for a low grade, my friend Chris Norman would call it a low grade fever of discomfort. Mm. We don't want that fever to spike. When it spikes is when we have conflict, but we want it to be a low grade fever so that nobody can ever get fully comfortable. Because then what happens is when we get comfortable and someone comes in, we become discomforted and uncomfortable, then we fight. Mm. And I even wonder, actually, as I say that, then as we look back at Azusa, did they become comfortable? Did the low-grade fever go away? Same page. Right. Everybody, oh, we're just, we're just drinking the Kool-Aid together and right. we're not drinking anything else. Right. And I think what helps, my guess is, because our church is really founded on a pretty strong preaching ministry that takes us through whole books of the Bible, that 
you know, makes us encounter hard truth. It, that helps keep that temperature kind of going. And I think because we emphasize such a different kind of culture than the churches around us, it also creates that temperature where if I'm going to be part of region, I'm just going to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to be part of region, I'm going to experience something that I don't fully understand. And so I think that's such a gift because it enables us to kind of weather. We're not going to start fighting about the healing. And if you are, if, if that makes you uncomfortable, then listen, we're probably just not the church for you. We're also just not desperate to hold on to every single person that's in the room. We want every person to be exactly where God calls them. And if something shifts in our culture that makes it not this church, not a place that you feel called to be, feel free. Like we want to help you to find a new place. So. What would you say as we're talking about Azusa Street is like a big takeaway or aha moment for you? It's that's it's a hard question to answer because you know this I think this is maybe to use like our Kairos moment language. Yeah. I think this is a speed bump for me. Okay. So it's something that like bumps me up and makes me like kind of again, jolts me out of that comfort zone. It spikes my finger slightly. Um, I think I come, you know, and it's just a quick up and quick back down. And then I just kind of go about the way that I worship God, um, the way that I worship him. Yeah. And the thing I believe, and, and maybe there's an invitation here to lean in and maybe pause on that speed bump a little bit more, let it hold me up a little bit more. To Terry. To Terry in the up. Uh, specifically around um, the power of the Holy Spirit and um, and in all and th- and what that and what that and what that can give me and what that and what God wants to reveal to me there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't I can't put my finger on anything specific. I, I think it's I think it's a a great piece of history mm-hmm. for the church. Um, I find the 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 racial conflicts the um the philosophical under uh underpinnings that that surround it the idea of like big conflicts like or not conflicts but um we'll say problems like the san francisco earthquake yeah the civil war sure uh, all of these things like kind of like leading up into this i think that is really interesting you know, I'm just, I've always been one, I've always been, I wouldn't say a history buff, but I've always been one to look at the history. Um, there's really cool facets of this, this story that you can get involved in. That's why there's people that dedicate their life as, as, as a street historians. But I would say, I would say if I had to just put one thing, it's just, it's for me to start paying attention a little bit more to what God has to say and what he's doing in these places where people are required to live life differently than the way that I do. What, and, and we can put, we can put one word on that. Like I don't tarry. Mm. I don't wait. Mm. Uh, I'm just going to launch, you know, somebody says, Hey Zach, pray. Okay. Well, I'm going to pray right now. Right. 
you know, Hey Zach, do this. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm probably going to get started on that relatively quickly. Right. I'm not really asking God about what I should do or mm. like waiting for him to give me a sign. I'm just kind of like just doing. And I remember Art told me one time, and you, you said this word earlier that is linked to the Azusa street mission. There's a difference between doing and being. Mm. And uh, maybe the emphasis is for me and anybody that, you know, my answer here is resonating with is to be, is to be like, what is God wanting me to be? How can I be a Christian? How can I be um, more in relationship with him and his spirit and Jesus? Right. Yeah. I think whether or not we love the outcome of the Azusa street revival or want to buy into their theology of sanctification and those kinds of things that typifies the Pentecostal movement. You can't argue with a desire to be in the presence of God and to know him more and to walk by that. Mm -hmm. So I think in future episodes, we can continue to explore Like we didn't really get into, we should have a whole one about what about justification and sanctification and walking by the spirit. And what does that mean? And what are these gifts? Because is, is tongues a gift that is distributed or is it an evidence of something? Because if it's an evidence, I want to seek it. If it's a gift, I'm just going to pray for it. Um, but I think there's so much that in this that helps us see the kind of church we want to become at the end of the day is one that is dependent on the Holy Spirit, that's dependent in prayer, that has a white-hot spiritual center. And so this makes me want to quest after it more and more. Yeah, I want to, I would say too, just to even just, re, like, I want to know, even dive a little bit more into who is the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, I want to know what Paul has to say to the Corinthians about it a little bit deeper. I want to know what, you know, the, the purpose and the reason Jesus and John is telling them, like, who's coming to help them. Um, and, and like, what exactly, like, is the Spirit's role? Yeah within us outside of us in the world in the church as a whole in yeah. our church, like yeah just and you know i, I kind of want to dive into those like i, I don't want to i don't want to say the holy spirit as a tool like how is he like how is he the tool right right like we have available to us but like kind of i want to say that like i want to know like how he's working i want to uh, maybe a good way to say this i want to take hold of everything that god has given me and the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father, is what William Seymour called him a lot. I want to receive the promise. Holy moly, what a marathon. Four episodes from an hour and a half of conversation of one of the most unique events in church history. I'm just so excited about where this conversation is going to lead in the following weeks. We'll be sharing that soon. Until then, you're loved, grace and peace, and may the fullness of the Holy Spirit be upon you today.